0: Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 122nd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. As the world economy emerges from the pandemic, it appears as if the specter of automation waits for us around the corner. While some are debating for a higher minimum wage or some form of a universal basic income, perhaps imagining what we would like the world to look like in 100 years and backwards planning from there might be our best option. A recent survey of 350 artificial intelligence researchers estimate that AI will be able to write a best-selling book by 2049 and even perform routine surgeries by 2053, with most human work eventually becoming obsolete within the next 120 years. While this might seem implausible and far-fetched, it may not be a bad idea to start imagining a future That we are heading for a century from now so that we can better understand the steps and failures that might occur along the way if the end result is that most of our work will eventually become obsolete how exactly will we be able to sustain a society which doesn't need to work in order to survive are we destined to become the next brave new world or is there perhaps a better alternative one that allows our lives to still have dignity and most importantly still have meaning. Joining me on this small glimpse into the future, I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, without work or the need to survive, can you still imagine having meaning in your life?
1: I think the word meaning is a very nebulous conversation. I think motivation, however, could take a hit. There is a biological element in our existence that requires us to have some sort of like some sort of situation where maybe we don't have everything that we need here's here's why i say this it's because i know a few very very wealthy people and trust fund individuals and they're so lost like they have no they have all these entrepreneurial ideas and god bless them but it's almost like they're phasing in and out of the reality of the situation which is you're put on this earth with nothing but your the own skin on your back and if you're lucky enough to have parents that have enough money that changes the dynamic of how you broach possibility and i don't think there's anything wrong with that it's it's no different than someone being born in poverty you know it's like just kind of the luck of the draw for your uh, for your reality sleeve to to grant you the moment you're born but for me personally having a job, now let's define that too, a job. Are we talking about a structured day-to-day approach to life that provides you resource in return? Or is it the mundane enslavement of the capitalist system to just pay your bills? Because those are two very different things. Now, if you look at a job as like uh, some sort of um, burden and, and some people, unfortunately, have to work these kinds of jobs just to make them and, and break even. I understand why they wouldn't want to do it anymore.
0: Let's, you know, let's talk about this idea of defining a job. I think that, first off, we're living in a remarkably uh, luxurious age where mm-hmm. in, in any other time of history, a job meant, oh, the stuff I do to to eat, Without that, without doing this activity, there is no food in my belly. And that was just like, I think the the classical definition of any type of work is to make sure that I obtain the necessary sustenance in order to see tomorrow. That that was it. I I don't think most people, yeah, there were some ruling elites that, you know, maybe wanted to buy purple silk (laughs) and then look fancy. But for most folk, it was basically just doing whatever it took to put food in their belly. So we're at a unique time where there's more and more people that do have a level of comfort where that's not as apparent. Now, there is a, ton, there's a crap ton of people who are in situations, you know, I know that uh, the homeless situation in California, for example, is crazy. So there's a lot of people who are still finding meaning, like, for them, meaning is simply finding a house, right? They're, they're, they're still struggling in that Maslow's hierarchy of just meeting that very basic need first and then all other meeting can transcend that. I guess when, we, when speaking to people who do have jobs though and they have their basic material comforts met, I think there is still this longing for Okay, like if we move up Maslow's hierarchy, once you've had several years of having your own place, once you've had several years of having enough food and you can buy most of the material comforts in which you desire, there then becomes a point where you say, well, how is this work transformative to my society? How is it? How am I leaving some kind of impact? What is the greater good? Again, when you're trying to um, fulfill the basic levels of Maslow's hierarchy, none of those questions are as as pertinent. Right. And you don't need to worry about that stuff as much. Your your basic idea is, I need food for me and my family. But once that's satisfied, I think that's kind of where meaning starts. It's not a it's it's like I want to say it's a luxury, but it also kind of is not just a luxury because it creeps into your life whether you want it or not.
1: Right. Being stuck in Mazlov's Mazlov's hierarchy is is bringing a different dynamic to this conversation. And we're kind of privileged enough to not be in that situation. So it's like on some, to to, to bring this into like a more grotesque conversational point, it is a little gross that we're able to have this conversation. (laughs) Because we are in America, we are in this gilded um, resource age well maybe not gilded but abundant certainly a resource age and we have the ability to be like, you know should I work for me? should I should I work for my pretty whale hot And the amount of people that have died at the end of muskets to make that happen is astounding. I mean to even just have that choice. So I'll never tell someone that they should not follow their dreams. in fact I tell them to do the opposite because I think the sacrifice of one person's life and a pursuit of failure that is still nowhere near the cost that it took to get you to have that chance in the first place. So it's like, congratulations, <laughs> you know, like you've been, you've been handed, you, you are a trust fund baby in some way, <laughs> like you were an American freedom trust fund baby.
0: <laughs> I like I like the way you're putting that. I think that's a that's a really good point. And I honestly think that, you know, if we look at our ancestors, the ones that really toiled in factories and so forth, I don't think that they would necessarily hate us. Like I don't actually think they would just like strangle our throats and be like, "You damn privileged pieces of crap. I hate you." I actually think they're like, "Ah, so that's what this like 80 years of toil was all about." You know, that that's what it is. Now, I think they would strangle us if we're, you know, one thing that this is like, and it's a very nuanced distinction, it's a very unique balance of where it's going too far. So one thing that kind of is bothering me is when I see somebody who's not working and Mm -hmm. I go on Facebook and there's all of these like, have you ever seen these like live streams of like just dudes like playing video games or something like that? And they're live streams. Yeah, Twitch
1: is what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, Twitch. And I, I know that there's like some way to monetize that and make money and all this other stuff. But then you got that guy kind of just playing that video game over and over. And then you got 500 people watching that. And that I think might be the thing that makes our like industrial revolution or our feudal ancestors or our Roman ancestors want to strangle us because they're like, here's this person playing this game. That they'll, they'll they, then they want to tear our eyes, our eyes out because they're like, I toiled all of those years so someone could sit on a comfy couch and play video games and live stream it. And not only that, like at least that person's putting in the work of playing the video game. There are 500 people just watching that person play that video game, they're not even doing the hard work of playing the damn game. That I think would drive them crazy. And where I kind of want to pivot this conversation is. If we just go with this attitude of like, we'll all be free, we'll, we'll all be free. Like there'll be no more work. We're going to be completely liberated from it. I don't want all of us to just become Twitch users or or, or Facebook users that just live stream video games. Cause I think at the end of the day, after like three years of that, you're gonna, you're gonna go crazy. You're gonna have an existential crisis. I don't care how much passive income or whatever that can generate. I think at some point you're gonna realize How the hell is this helping anyone else in this world? And that's why I kind of think finding hobbies, finding recreation and finding ways and pathways that generate real substantive meaning that actually bring value into people's lives is going to be the way to go for the next hundred years. If we want to avoid that dystopia of everyone just being a live streamer or just completely losing themselves into drugs and virtual reality, we need to start having these conversations now, not because it's going to happen tomorrow, but because we want that hundred years from now to look so much better.
1: Well, I'm going to challenge you on this. Yeah. Although I agree on you, I'm going to play some devil's advocate. So I have an entertainment background. So I understand the draw of being an entertainer on any form or format, including Twitch. But the difference is, is, They're not, they they can't just be vicariously living through you without you putting any sort of entertainment effort. Like the product isn't watching you play basketball. Well, it is actually. Um, That's kind of a bad analogy because the awe of the sport is what draws people. It's not necessarily the people playing basketball. It's how it makes them feel what's possible within their physical body. So it's kind of similar in a way with Twitch, but <clears throat> the key difference is what you do in between the games, what you do in those quiet moments. You're not just sitting there silently clicking. That's just a bad streamer and it's become a, a running joke, but then you have someone like Dr. Disrespect, who is one of the most entertaining people I've ever seen on the screen ever. He's 6'4. he shows up in a wig with a terrible mustache. He used to be a game developer. He nearly went pro in basketball. He has this caricature about him, which is about violence, speed, and momentum. He's a total troll. So, and his whole setup is well-produced. That's different. That's different. That is no different than Kabuki Theater. No different. So, you know, the bad Twitch streamers, yeah, it's a horrible expression of incel, Our Roman ancestors would be like, kill me now. Someone take my gladius and stab me directly in the heart. I don't care.
0: I want to kind of come in and I'm not going to defend, like I've actually fallen victim. Like one of the biggest wastes of time that I've ever engaged in is watching like some of these like Star Wars, like alternative universe theories or whatever. And they're a huge time sunk, like just huge, huge amounts of time. And every time I watch one of these things or I fall down these YouTube rabbit holes, I feel immensely guilty at myself. I'm like, man, man, oh man, you have wasted yourself. Now I actually want to like, I I want to talk about um, who's that guy? Dr. Dr. Disrespect. Dr. Yeah. Okay, let's. Talk. I don't know who he is, but let's just use him as an example. Dr. Disrespect. And let's just say we also have, in, in the right corner, we have Dr. Disrespect. And in the left corner, we have some guy with a Twitch channel live streaming himself playing uh, Grand Theft Auto, okay? With no talent, mm-hmm. no sense of humor, no built-in personality, none of that like yummy goodness, right? right? What we need to do is we need to start setting up systems that can start developing character, start developing humor, start developing personality, start developing substance. Like we're what we're looking for is, is substance. And it's it's really difficult to define. Like what makes Dr. Disrespect so great? Well, maybe he took some acting classes, maybe he like read a lot, maybe he worked on his comedy routine and really got witty, yeah. really got funny. He's very observant about human nature. We need to have systems in this world that start. Crafting those kind of experiences and start crafting those types of skills, so that if you are a Twitch streamer, you're producing stuff that is worthwhile to society. And it's okay if you don't know how to do that initially. Not not everyone right. is going to be born and come out of the womb and start quoting Aristotle. But what we need to do is we, if we're going into this recreational model universe or world, we need to start building pathways to kind of cultivate that skill you know, because like, I actually think that, you know, it's kind of like what Nietzsche believes in. It's like paint as if your life depended on it. You're painting. You're not just painting. You're not just creating art as a pastime or as a hobby. You're creating that work of art as if this was the highest expression of who you are. You're like, you need to treat that artwork as if you don't paint this thing, you will starve to death. Because when our our hunter-gatherer ancestors were going about, they were like, if I don't catch this buffalo, I'm starving tomorrow. So when you're painting something, you need to have that same exact mindset. Like if I don't paint this thing, if I don't write this book, if I don't make this podcast, I'm starving to death. Even if that's not true, we have to start tricking ourselves into believing that.
1: And it really is the antithesis of what we're discussing. The, the human element being added to the equation is the only unique fingerprint we have left. And I know scientists are saying, well, don't worry, technology will do that too. I say bananas. That's bananas. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's the same way you argue that the feel of a Porsche is better than a Ford F-150. They both drive you to where you're going, but there's a soul within the, the construction of its parts. And I don't think you can immediately replicate that. You can replicate an algorithm to make something similar. In fact, something recently just happened. A brand new Nirvana, Doors, Jimi Hendrix, and Janis, no, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse album was just released. That was all algorithm based. And some of the music was like, whoa, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And then some of the music is like, nice try, nice try. I know better, but. They're starting to rep- replicate art. But at the end of the day, you can't have a robot go on a stage and have that biological flurry in, the, in each audience member's cell structure. When they see this amazing performative human being who's like ascended, grip the microphone on the stage and just put a spell on 100,000 people. You know, it's like you can't 100,000 is enormous. How much are I- concert.
0: Absolutely, my friend. And I actually agree. I I sent you an article for this podcast and it said that by, uh, I alluded to in the intro that by 2049, AI will be able to write best-selling books. And I call total BS on that 100%. And the reason I say that is because an AI, for for most algorithms, for example, are actually configured to use pre-existing data to make something that we're going to like, right? When a when a robot sits down to do something, it uses all the data points of like, well, this has worked. This is what made Star Wars special. This is what's made that special. This is what's made. Uh, all these other things special in the past. Therefore, we're going to create that. When an artist sits down and creates true artwork, they don't give a crap about any previous data points. They're like, this is what I need to create. This is what's coming out of me. And this is what I need to create. I don't care how little people like it or how many people like it. I need to create Mm -hmm. this. That's something that an AI will never be able to do because an AI does not have the instinctual urge to create art. It can it can create art based on previous data points of what was successful, but it doesn't have like a passion or an urge to be like, I need to get this out of my system. It literally does not, right. it does not have that within its system. So I disagree. I, I think it could write a novel based on pre-existing data points of, you know, well, this we're gonna take the best of Lord of the Rings, we're gonna take the best of Star Wars, the best of pulp fiction, and just make this giant novel out of it. I'm like, great. What if does the does the AI have the bravery to write something that's a total flop? I don't think so.
1: Mm, wow. Yeah, that's profound. Does it have the bravery to write something that's a total flop? I love that. I no, it, it can't. Because what are the stakes that your little God creator unplugs you? <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, I'm not going to be able to feed my family for 30 days how do you how do you do that right it's like oh if i improperly notch you know this uh this piece of silver i've just wasted a third of my monthly income it's like no you you, you, you can't do that as a robot and i'm getting frustrated right now i'm actually getting angry at robots as we're having this discussion because they don't have the courage to do that look you know my opinion on robots i do not trust them i do not trust them to handle my art i do not trust them to handle my interpretation of life there's Nothing you can say to make me feel otherwise. But this is part of the human condition is the jostling between failure and success is what creates that cocktail of uniqueness that just shatters people's perspectives and just pulls them into this new firmament. They never thought that they could have this perception of life in this unique way. The, The finest authors do that where they, yes. they they've transcended into this different universe and they say hey come on over here for a block party the view is incredible.
0: You know, I I, I 100% agree and I don't think there could ever be an AI Andy Warhol because if if you mm. if you were actually in that time period let's just freeze 1960s there was nothing like Andy Warhol up until that moment. So the AI would only be using pre-existing data points in order to create ARC. It would never, it would never conclude based on all of the Renaissance work, all the medieval artwork, it would never conclude that random, you know, Campbell soup cans would actually be worth anything. But it's that brazenness, that brazenness to be like, I don't give a shit. And I'm going to yeah. fail, I'm going to fail badly at this, that actually is the spark of genius. So I, I, th- I have a lot of hope for humanity. I think that the robots, they can totally lift our boxes. They can totally work in our warehouses. They can totally drive our cars. But I think that if we don't really utilize this human potential, we don't realize that like just because the robots are lifting the boxes, that doesn't mean that we get to just sit on the couch and do nothing. What it means is that each of us needs to be finding some kind of special talent that we can actually craft to its highest potential. If if we really want to, if we're going to survive the next hundred years, I think that's the only way that we're going to be survived. Because if we become a civilization of Twitch streamers, nihilism is going to kick in full steam and that's going to start leading to some very self-destructive tendencies.
1: I think we're already there. I really do. I just don't think um, we've awakened to the idea that we're there already. I mean, the suicide rates are just through the roof. People are so lost. Everyone's on some sort of chemical mind-altering substance. Divorce is 52%. And that's just a statistic from those that have been together like for more than 12 years, I think it was. So who knows what the divorce rate is under that metric. And I'm curious to see what kind of art stems from this.
0: You know, I I was reading some C.S. Lewis recently, and I like this idea that when you get to heaven all of the struggles and all the misery of the past will also become heavenly so i i I, if we see this as the end point right if we see that this is the end point then we're destined to just become hell like and and everything leading up to it will also be equally as hellacious but if we can actually see this as a a learning opportunity if we're like we're starting to drift into this nasty direction. Like we're starting to drift into that, like everyone needs to be on some kind of pill. Everybody needs to be medicated. Everybody needs to be uh, spending eight hours on Netflix a day. We're we're drifting into that direction. There's still a chance to course correct. And if we course correct and start realizing, okay, let's not deny automation. Let's embrace it and acknowledge that it is coming and there's nothing that we can do about it. Let's now understand that, have acceptance of that, and now let's start cultivating the individual into their highest form, into their highest given potential. It was funny, we were supposed to record this episode uh, two weeks ago, but I actually did even more research in that two weeks. So it's actually a blessing that we actually didn't record two weeks ago, because I was reading this one article that said that, that they've actually done a study and all of I'm not I'm not talking about uh, bus drivers or essential workers here, but in terms of like your run-of-the-mill corporate office job, they calculated that all of those corporate office jobs could easily be done in like 12.5 hours a week. That's it, 12.5 hours a week, and that all of that other time. All of that. Yeah. All of that other like 29 hours uh, a week or whatever is all going on Facebook, updating your LinkedIn or having a three hour conversation near the water cooler. That's all that that is. So of all those corporate jobs, a lot of it is just a waste and that's why I said, even if you're employed right now, your soul is still rotting. So even if you have a job, your soul is still rotting because you know very well that your job could be done in 12.5 hours. You don't need to actually be there. That's for
1: so crazy to think about. Yes. That's so crazy to think about because, yeah, the ROI on it is obvious. And just one thing I know from wor- from working the corporate machine It's that if the numbers make sense, baby, it's going to happen. Here's my question. We talked about robots taking over artistic progression, let's call it, the progress of art. Here's a question for you. I think it's more realistic to define the differences where a robot can create the the motif, can't create the movement, right? Can't create the, the cubism period, can't create the blue period, whatever, but they can replicate it. So is the first step that, artists come up with the idea? And then the daisy chain that would inevitably come as competitors struggle to try to meet the new artistic standard of Andy Warhol, let's say, is that where automation can really sink its teeth into art? Because it can just replicate, right? If Andy Warhol, or let's let's make it a Guernica, right? Picasso's Guernica. All of a sudden, you're exposed to this Cubism period, and you're like, "What is this? What is this?" And then you put a computer, and it does a little, its little scan, and it says, "Thank you, Master Printing." And then immediately just regurgitates this like Cubism, but they take it a step further. You know, maybe they add a different level of polygon, and now all of a sudden it's 3D. And you're like, "And Picasso's like, I put forty thousand hours into this hand in order to get that brush exactly how I want." And this iPhone over here just regurgitated New Gurnisa. Is that what's going to happen? The daisy chain gets taken over.
0: But here's the thing, though, because I think that you know, once you start regurgitating or repeating, there's no genius in that. Like the genius, lo- the the genius and the and the beauty of that is already gone. Once, once because what do we call something mm. that is a blatant ripoff? We call it a knockoff. We call oh well, you're you're a wannabe Picasso. You're a wannabe blah blah blah. So, in my opinion, when it comes to fine art. The AI can only be a, a replica. It can only be a wannabe Picasso. It can only be a wannabe uh, uh, Stephen King. Like it can, it can replicate Stephen King novels, but it's just a wannabe. It's actually, it's actually that threshold where you're the first to do something. And I know I've heard everything's already been done, but you know, okay, fine. I've heard that one before. But there's always just something new that you could be the first to do. There's just always, there's always just some layer or just some vanguard stance that you could take that just has not really, the data points will just not add up there. So I think people would be bored with whatever the AI produces because they'll be like, well, this is just a slight variant of of this work. This is just a slight variant of that work. That's where you need the human because the human, like I said, is willing to get there. They're willing to trip and fall and get their face covered in mud. The AI won't do that. The AI won't take that risk. The AI won't produce garbage. It won't produce things that will just blow up and 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 do that. But you need to live in the failure zone in order to get to the godly zone.
1: Right. But genius is subjective, isn't it? I mean, isn't it that only human beings recognize genius in human beings? Like a dolphin doesn't recognize genius in a human piece of art. Is it that it's slowly the opinion of the consumer gets so tilted that they look at the, the replication as genius?
0: Okay. I, I think that's a fair point. And I think that genius in the future is going to become a lot more niche. And and I'll explain how. There is a lot of people out there who love manga and anime, but as we all know, not everyone loves manga and anime. Thankfully, our population at, you know, 7 billion is big enough that you can actually create niche genius. Like you could create, you know, the best manga or anime and not everyone's going to think you're a genius. You know, like my uncle might watch uh, one piece or one of these like you know, animes and be like, ah, eh, whatever. I, I don't like that. But there's still like a hundred million people out there who do like what it is that you are creating. So I think if we look at genius in those niche categories of like, I create this artwork, there's enough, there's enough population, especially as we become completely globalized at some point, and everyone's going to have wi wifi you know, probably. I think that's a reasonable right. expectation to make in the next 10 years. You know, like, for example, I've gotten people who have, commented about uh, some of the stuff that I've written and stuff on this podcast that live all the way in Africa. You know, so maybe, maybe my niche is, you know, in that particular region or with that particular demographic. So I think that we can all cultivate genius. It may not receive worldwide acclaim, but you would be able to target that particular audience. And just, just for context, right? If you have followers or you have people that are loving your work, if you have, let's say you know, a hundred million people that love your stuff. Hey, that's way more people than ever existed in the ancient world.
1: Right. That is true. And, you know, just from the law of economics, the more scarce the resource, the more value. So these genius things are able to be replicated then. I mean, this is a whole NFT conversation, right? Where they're Hmm. they're making a finite amount of electronic resource or the argument behind the economics of Bitcoin. Where there's only a finite amount available it's what stabilizes the value and so i guess you could argue that because things can be replicated and they're not from the original hand that there is some sort of incubation for that it's just it's not going to be widely distributable i think we're we're in the manufacturing element of genius right Right. like the genius of the iphone for example can just be zipped out to the rest of the world
0: Let me, let me, I'll even take this on a much smaller scale, okay? And this can actually be the difference between somebody becoming a full-blown nihilist who sits at home and drinks themselves to death and somebody who can actually have meaning in their lives. Let's just say you write poetry. You're a poet, okay? We'll call you a poet. And let's say only about 30 people really love your poetry, right? Mm -hmm. But, but of those 30 people that love your poetry... They really, really love it, and you're in frequent contact with them every single day. They're like, "Aaron, please write me another poem." That can actually give your life meaning. It doesn't have to be at that 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 like critical like you know hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, million, two million, three. You know, it could just simply be I have thirty people that are constant presence in my life that need that poetry that I write, and. Because my poetry makes those people happy, even if it's just 30 people, I have meaning in my life. That's a reason to keep me alive, because if I died, well, then those 30 people would would, would be at a loss of something in their lives. So if we start thinking on those very micro scales, if we start actually uh, designing the society where people can be the source or the generator of meaning or the source and generator of artwork within very small localized communities, people are going to be happy. And that's going to actually, that could be the difference maker. If you've got 30 people counting on you to do something every single day, that can really be the difference between like laying in bed all day and actually doing the thing that you ought to be doing.
1: Well, I mean, definitely if you have 30 people, but sometimes even one.
0: Sure. Absolutely. You
1: know, and I wonder what kind of, um, schism is eventually being caused by that communal responsibility that biological requirement that has driven us from the depths of putrid caves to the sprouting of this brand new civilization i mean that is what that's what caused it is the need to help others and to set a certain foundational principle so that the next person is able to reap the rewards quite literally to reap the harvest of what someone has planted before and yet, machine learning is almost a reverse approach to that, and it is you know just discussing this with you—that's incredibly irresponsible,
0: in, it's, right? In many ways, it is. I, li- I like what you said here that it's actually an innate response. Like, we actually derive meaning from helping others. You know, like I hear a lot of like Iron Rand, no, oh, you live for yourself. You li- you live to be like a marble pedestal of yourself, and I'm like. Okay, uh, no, there's there, there's another element to that as well. It's yes, you should cultivate yourself to the highest form possible. Like I agree with Jordan Pearson on that and I agree with other kind of self-helpish gurus who think that you should because again, if you don't cultivate yourself to the highest version of yourself, you become that lazy Grand Theft Auto Twitch streamer, right? You're just producing low low quality product every single day, low quality product. So you have to produce yourself to the highest version of yourself, but then use that highest version of yourself to help others. And I think that's what actually gives life meaning. You you have the highly cultivated version of yourself, but you don't just lock yourself in a closet, right? Like right. it would be pretty depressing to like paint amazing stuff and then be like, wow. Okay, into the closet it goes. No, no, no human eyes will ever look upon this artwork again. You know, you wanna <laughs> you wanna you wanna take your artwork. And if the scale is too high, if you're, if you're, if you define success, well, I need at least a hundred million people to cherish this artwork. Well, you're going to feel like shit pretty darn quickly. But if Mm. your goal is like, I want one person, one person to look to gaze their eyes upon this artwork and see something and feel something. Well, now you actually have a reason to get out of bed.
1: Sometimes that's all it takes, but how quickly will that disappear with the rise of automation? Is it, is there going to be a heavier reliance on selfish motivation since everything is so easily obtainable and, you know, any sort of, uh, any sort of trade that you can offer your time is the most important thing, right? So we're talking about getting unlimited time, basically, how does that affect the dynamic of that? And I just, I wonder what kind of human evolves from that hundred years down the road. Let's take, let's take a century in, in thought here. What's a good example of a hundred years of social and cultural revolution, like vast, I guess our, our lives, right? A hundred years, like our century. I mean, a hundred years ago from now, it's pretty insane. So we're already starting to see it. I do think that there is more selfishness. There's less principle there is less community pillars of principle. This trend may just accelerate.
0: Well, I think that's where, now here's here's the thing, when I say this idea of like a recreational economy or an economy in which everyone is allowed to pursue their highest form, I think the missing element of this is an accountability component to it, right? So if, if let's just say, all jobs become obsolete. Okay. We're in the utopia now. All the jobs are obsolete. That doesn't mean that you just be like, all right, well, I have to make a painting today. Splash, splash, splash. Okay. I'm done. Now let me pick up my video game controller and go about my day. What that means is that you still have people in your life that are holding you accountable, that are are nudging at you. Like Aaron, I have to say your artwork has kind of you know, I don't know what's going on here. It doesn't look like you're putting in that effort anymore, you know, and that's a positive thing. Like it's a it, like it's a positive thing where there is that community accountability that that people are making sure that you're doing the task that you are basically subscribing to. And you might plateau at some point. At some point, you may actually create the best possible artwork that you can do. And you're just you're not yielding the same quality art. And that happens. Fair enough. But then That's where society has to kind of nudge you to be like, all right, you're going to start trying something new. You're going to do this new thing now. And we're constantly shoving people. Once they've kind of maxed out and plateaued in one arena, we're guiding them to the next endeavor. You know, there could be maybe like a month of fun or a month break. That's totally cool. We all need to recharge our batteries and so forth. But I actually, I think in some ways this recreational economy could be even more demanding than, than that of like the industrial revolution economy, because we're, we're constantly mm. pushing people if we're if we're constantly pushing people to do what it is that they say that they want to do, it will work. If we just dole out like free money and be like, all right, yay, I'm a painter, la, 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 you know, not going to work not going to work. We're going to do the least amount of work possible that we can get away with and and go back to the bars and go back to our video games and so forth. So accountability is really going to be the mechanism that gets this recreational economy to work. There is no
1: accountability. I mean, there, there isn't like even now, I mean, I, I heard this crazy statistic um, unless it's like within your family structure, it's got to be a social accountability and moral accountability is only upheld. By the pillars that society keeps up. It's not a law. Mm-hmm. There are laws, but even the laws aren't accountable. Someone told me this. Every human being commits three felonies every single day. And it was the premise behind, I think it was Stalin who said, point to me the man, I'll find the crime when they're able to start imprisoning people. So it's completely interpretive. There's no accountability there. Accountability is relative to the situation and, and the, the the need behind it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So adding these machine elements, I just, I do not see a reverse trend on accountability. I see um, the opposite. I think there's going to be more scapegoating, right? Because it's like, well, I didn't do that. I didn't pull the lever. How do we interpret the law?
0: Okay, I, lo- I love what you're saying. Okay, let's, man, you know, I actually have to thank the lazy Twitch guy playing Grand Theft Auto because they're just such fodder. For example, so thank you, lazy dude. Right? (laughs) Let me let me just thank that guy right now. Here's how accountability works. So you got lazy dude live streaming his Grand Theft Auto. You know he's driving the car in the clouds and doing whatever. They I, I don't know what the hell they're doing. He's doing that. Here's where accountability kind of comes into the picture. The reason that dude is allowed to do that is because he has 500 views and he has all of these people commenting, way to go, bro. You know, nice. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Everyone is, is kind of like giving this person adulation. They're giving, they're giving someone who does not have any talent or any highly cultivated skill, adulation, attention, views, So of course, they're going to continue along those same lines of behavior is because they're getting adulation. They're getting attention for doing mediocre work. The accountability mechanism comes in where we as people say, this is really boring. This is garbage. I'm not going to watch this. I'm not going to comment on it. I'm not, I'm going to close YouTube now. I'm going to go do something else. Then that person feels very alone, and they're like, "Well, no one's watching me live stream. No one's, no one's watching me play Grand Theft Auto anymore." That's the catalyst for them to start getting off their behind and start cultivating their acting skills, start cultivating their artistic uh, ability. Because, you know, we all, we, we as human beings are social creatures. I, I want, like, whoever says, oh, "I can live in a mountain in a cave," all right, great for you, Henry Thoreau. But for most of us, we are social creatures. We feed off each other's energy. And the accountability mechanism comes in there where it's like, we're just not inviting you to that party anymore. We're not watching your videos anymore. We're not going to give you our eyes. We're not going to give you our our ears anymore. That's all you need to do. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to lock them in a prison or do anything really that hard. Once they see that that attention is starting to fade and wane, they're going to, they're going to reswizzle themselves because they want to be a part of society. Well said. Yeah, man. Um, Again, man, I don't have all of the answers to, to the... I, Hold I've, on, what? Huh?
1: You don't have, you don't have <laughs> the answers? Why do I come on this podcast?
0: Right. This, this, this discussion, you know, I, I think anyone listening to this discussion, this is just a preface to the problem. So I, I think that yeah. this discussion is, is a preface to the problem. The very first step that we need to make is don't, don't like, some people are just denying automation. No, 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 it's not going to happen. We have to accept that number one, it's going to happen. End of story. Unless there's like, God forbid, there's like a bunch of nukes that go off and we're back to like throwing rocks at each other. If that, if assuming that does not happen, there is going to be high levels of automation. Let's just embrace it. And once once we embrace it and don't fear it anymore and don't say, oh my God, it's going to be <laughs> horrible. Once we embrace it, then we can actually start constructing what a beautiful recreational like economy can be like. Again, I don't have all the answers as to what exactly that would be, but I think in order in order to construct the reality you want, you must first accept reality for what it is. So yes, definitely. once once we do that, then we can start reaching the paradise in which we envision. Alex, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. This concludes the 122nd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.